Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. Uh, we're starting, or in fact, we're teasing. It's, uh, we're teasing a new series today. Who enjoys being teased? No, right? Of course not. That's a silly thing to say. Uh, but who enjoys like teasers? Who likes it when you get to the end of, specifically I'm thinking Marvel movies, uh, and there's that little clip that comes post-credit scene, and it, and it kind of sets you up for the next thing that's happening. Who enjoys that? Who doesn't like that? Who's like, come on, now I'm wondering what's going to happen next, and also I don't like waiting. And the, Who didn't know that that happens, right? Because the, the movie finishes, and you're like, right, gone. You've never realized it. It took me a while to realize uh, we're not preaching about post-credit scenes, though, at all today. Uh, that's not the title of the sermon. The title of our sermon is Our House, God's House, right? And, and really what we want to speak about today, and it's a, a bit of a, a, a teaser to the series that we're going to start for the next couple of weeks. We'll see how long it goes. Uh, I've, I've got some exciting things that I think that we could talk about. But it's this, it's this idea of what is this, right? What is this group of people? What is this room that we gather in? What is the intent of who we are? And, and we really want to speak about the fact that this is our house, that you are welcome here, that, that actually, to take it a step further, if you are planted here, if you view this as your house, there are responsibilities that come in being in the house. Not in a, oh man, you have to do it way, but in a, hey, you get to. You're a part of this. You get to belong. You get to invest. And we believe that as you do, you grow. But that also, it's not just our house, right? We don't just do the songs that Jono likes, because it's not just my house. It's not just our house, but this is God's house. We believe that there is something divine about the gathering together of the church, that something so important happens when we gather together and when we seek Him together. Yeah, and, and so really what I'd love to, to speak about today is not just the fact that we pray together, not just the fact that hopefully we have fun together or, or that we grow together or that we worship together. I want to start with the hardest one. I want to talk about the fact that we serve together. Who loves serving? Some of you are like, no, I'm not going to raise my hand to that. That's a, that's a false thing, right? I'll be honest. I don't love serving. That's all right. My intent today is wherever you're at in your relationship with serving, that you would leave here with an understanding of the character of Christ that we are called to step into as servants. And, and my unashamed goal is that you would leave being like, oh, actually, there is a place in my life for serving. Maybe it'll be in church, maybe it'll be somewhere else, but that you will be convinced that as a follower of Jesus, serving is essential to your health, your growth, and your walk with Christ. Why don't you bow your heads with me one more time and let's pray. God, I thank you so much for, for this moment as we gather together. I pray that, that as I speak, it would not be my words, it would not be my ideas, but that you would speak, that, that your word would go out, that your Holy Spirit would be moving amongst us, that, that you would speak into hearts and minds, that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, that, that we would leave knowing that we are moving towards who you have called us to be by your power, in your strength, because of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So today I want to I wanna speak from, from a passage uh, found in Mark, Mark chapter 10, verse 35 uh, to 45. You might recognize it. And, and before I uh, read from this passage, I want to uh, acknowledge up front that I have a tendency uh, when I preach to be a little bit harsh on the disciples. Right? I think hindsight is, is 20, 20. And, and often when I'm reading about the disciples and their interactions with Jesus, the questions that they ask Jesus, the things that they do, if I'm honest, sometimes I'm reading and I'm like, man, I would have been such a better disciple. Right, like, come on, Peter, what do you, I would never have chopped off anyone's ear. 
right? Come on, Thomas, I would not have doubted. What's, do you guys not know that this is the living God with you? Which I think is important to realize that no, for, for a, a, they came to realize, but for a lot of it, they, they didn't realize it. And there are a lot of times that I think we can encounter the disciples and they ask questions and we can be like, that's a dumb question. I want to say that this passage of scripture, I think, in my opinion, holds the dumbest question the disciples have ever asked, right? This is, this is my, like, crowning achievement in the Bible of dumbest disciple question. We can have a discussion afterwards. You might think it's not dumb. You might think you found a dumber one. I'd be interested to know. Uh, but but I, I think that it's great that there are dumb questions in the Bible because I have a tendency to ask dumb questions, and so I love when I see in the Bible these disciples who went on to change the world, who went on to, to establish the church, to bring transformation, not just to where they lived, but the entire globe, to, to, to places that they had never known, right? They did not know about New Zealand. And yet because of their actions, a cascade of events throughout history led to the gospel being established here. And yet they still ask dumb questions. So I think we can be encouraged that dumb questions are okay. Speaking of, let's turn to the Bible. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 35 to 45. I'm reading the NIV translation. It says this. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Bold question of Jesus, right? Especially if you're aware of kind of where he's moving towards. He's about to die for them. So it's kind of, you know, it's a bit of a, a cherry on top. Right? We don't feel like you're doing quite enough. We've got a request. Will you do for us whatever we ask? And interestingly, Jesus isn't, isn't like, well, depends on, on what you want. He just says, what do you want me to do for you? And, and they replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at the left in your glory. Basically, they're saying, hey, Jesus, we think that you're about to become a real big deal. And, and we're asking, when you become a real big deal, can we become really big deals too? Like, when you become king of the world, because that's what they think is going to happen, when you reestablish the nation of Israel as the, the, the global powerhouse that we believe it's meant to become, can we be fairly important in that hierarchy? Can we become kings on earth? And he responds to them, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? It's a little bit like seashells, seashells on the seashore. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten, that's the other disciples, heard of this, they became indignant with James and John, which I think is fair enough, right? There's 12 of you. Two of you are like, hey, can we be more important than the rest? The other ten were like, hey, it's a little bit unfair. So Jesus calls them together and he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, I believe one of the primary functions of the church, this, this body, this family, this army, this group of people is freedom. But because the Bible says, regardless of, of how you think or, or how you feel that you're in bondage, the Bible says that, that you're a captive. And what Jesus is saying when he says at the end of this passage, I came to ransom you, is he means that we are captive to bad masters, to, to tyrants. We are under oppression to terrible masters. And, and I want to briefly explain to you kind of who those masters are 
and then what we can do about it. Is that all right? We're on board? Yeah, some of you are like, we'll see, we'll see. I'm not so sure about the whole servant thing, but I'll, I'll follow you until I disagree too strongly, and then there'll be an, an exodus of people. That'll be all right. If we reach there, uh, we'll, we'll do some heavy backpedaling. The first master, the first master uh, is self. Self with a, with a capital S. It, it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that we are lovers of self. And, and when Paul writes that, he's not talking about a healthy self-confidence. He's instead saying a, a life in which you are at the center. And, and your, your response to that might be, it's my life, right? If it's my life, and last I checked it was, who else would be at the center? What else would my life be about if it wasn't about me? But, but think about this, yourself, the self, is a terrible master. Because if you are at the center of you, if your ego, if your, your sense of, of preservation and value is at the center of your life, you'll always be feeling hurt, you'll always be comparing yourself with other people, or you'll always be feeling shunned. One of those three, you'll be in a cycle. You'll always feel like someone is not treating you properly. You'll always feel like you're on the outside. And what ends up happening, even if those things are true, which often there's a kernel of truth to any real offense is you live a life spent in protection of self. The great purpose, the great mission of your life, whether you know it or not, ends up becoming one of self-preservation, protecting the hypersensitive self which is in the center. Your entire life is fending off anything that might damage how you view yourself. And really, that's a life of bondage. That's a, that's a life of, of captivity. Because all you're doing, you're not able to pursue your dreams, you're not able to pursue your hopes, you're not able to live the life that God has called you to live, because all that you're about is constantly playing defense for your ego. The, the other idol, uh, the other uh, uh, master, the other type of bondage that the Bible says sin creates is that unless Jesus is your master, your supreme Lord, you're not only in bondage to yourself, but you're in bondage to idols, and when we talk about idols in church, it can be hard to figure out what exactly we're talking about. Because it's this, this kind of storied concept and we, we throw it around. But what do we mean when we say idols? We might think of, oh, well, I don't have any, there's no like carved statues in my house. There's, there's nothing, like, I don't think that I have any idols. I'll, just, I'll have a spring clean and make sure no one set one up in the broom closet. But last I checked. But, but the Bible says that, that uh, when... The Bible says, in fact, that we should shun this, this Greek word, epithumia. And epithumia simply means over-desires. And, and it's a much more helpful way, I think, of viewing idols. That idols aren't just bad things, that idols aren't just wooden figures that we might put up in a certain place and pray to at a certain time of day. But, but if we do not have Jesus as our Lord, something else will be. That if God is not God in our lives, something else will take that place. That, that whatever you put your hope in to fulfill self, whatever you need in your life to make you feel like your life is okay, whatever if it was taken from your life, your life would fall down, can become an idol. It can be career, it can be your looks, it can be your health, it can be romance, it can be relationship. You might think, wait, wait a second, all of those things sound like good things. They are. Right, this, this idea of epithumia is over-desires. These things are not in and of themselves bad or evil, but it's the degree to which we take value from them that can ruin them, that can, can break them. Essentially, anything that you have to have can become an idol because it becomes an over-desire. We take a good thing 
and we put it in the wrong place. We ask too much of it, and as a result, we break it. And, and you might be thinking, well, I, I, don't, I don't think I'm in bondage to these things in my life. I don't think I'm enslaved to these things in my life. But if they were taken away from you and your life fell apart, technically we are, which is confronting for me at least. Because I know if I look at my life, there are things that I'm, I'm constantly flirting with, with idolatry. Oh man, this is coming in and it's I'm taking too much value. This is coming in and it's taking too much of me. And I don't realize that they're wrong until they oppress me. I don't realize that they're wrong until something goes wrong and I go, oh wow, I was taking a whole lot from that and I put myself in a dangerous place. So if the Bible says that we're in bondage, the Bible says if Jesus says he came to ransom us from self and from idols, what do we do about it? Surely that's the question. Because we end up in a place where we don't want to live a life of bondage. We don't want to live a life of captivity. But, but there, there is hope. Because as I said, Jesus comes here and he says the gospel is the good news that Jesus shares at the end of this passage. That he came to give his life as a ransom. He came to free us. He came to pay a substitutionary price. And, and do you know, right when we talk about that, it's substitutionary price, what is that? Jesus talks about it as this concept of, of a cup, which seems an, an odd thing to lean into. Can you take this cup that I'm taking? It's an established principle that we want to unpack today, but often cups are used in Jewish imagery to represent an ordeal or something that has to be gone through. And, and so if we think of the cup as an ordeal and, and think of Jesus where he is in this moment heading towards the cross, all of a sudden things start to click into understanding. We, we realize that when Jesus speaks about the cup, he's speaking about what he went through in the garden what he went through on the cross. And, and if we start to realize what he went through in that, you can't read this passage without it giving you goosebumps. You know, on, on Good Friday, I, I really wanted to, to step into the, the fullness of, of that cup. I was like, man, I just, I feel like I, I need to fully make myself aware this Good Friday of how much Jesus went through for me. And so I made the bold and, and perhaps foolhardy decision of re-watching The Passion of the Christ. Who's watched Passion of the Christ? Who enjoyed it? All hands go down. Not a lovely movie. Quite uncomfortable. And I was watching it, and, and Emma and I were sitting there, and we kind of got like halfway through. And to be honest, I was like, if this was anything else, if this was any other movie about anything else, I would have turned it off. This is not entertainment. This is, this is not comfortable. This is not an enjoyable experience. And then I reminded myself that it wasn't meant to be. This was not, it was in a movie form, but it's not meant to be a piece of entertainment. It's meant to make us realize the physical suffering that our Savior went through, and it's very effective in doing that. And then I had the thought that the physical suffering that Jesus went through on the cross, the physical suffering that Jesus went through in that passion was the least of what he endured. That the physical suffering was the least, the, the spiritual and emotional torment that he went through, taking our sins on himself, was so much more. And so when I start thinking about this cup, I start to feel a little bit overwhelmed, if I'm honest. This is incredible what, what Jesus went through, that Jesus took this cup to, to free me, to free me from the master of self that I do not have to be enslaved to my own ego, constantly trying to make sure that I feel good enough about myself, that I do not need to be enslaved to, to idols, good things in the wrong place, but that Jesus has life and life abundantly for me. And so therefore the question must be, how do I find this life? If Jesus has come to ransom me, how do I step into the life that he has for me? And so here Jesus is, he's in this discussion with the disciples on greatness. 
And he says to them, I've come to free you from all the things that stop you from being great, stop you from being as you were made to be. I'm, I'm here to free you from sin. And he goes on to say, and so if you want to be great, be a servant. And it's an interesting little two-step that Jesus does here in amongst that uh, biblical kind of tongue twister. Because in verse 38, he seems to say, you can't take my cup. He seems to say, you don't know what you're asking. When he, when he asks James and John, do you know what I'm going to go through? Do you know the cup that I'm going to take? Do you know the baptism? And by that, he means baptism of, of torment, of suffering that I'm going to go through. Do you really think that this is something that you can take? You can't take it, he seems to imply. But then he goes on in verse 39, and he says, you will take it. Did Jesus change his mind in the space of a sentence? Like, you can't take it. On second thought, this sucks for me. Misery loves company. Come on up on the cross with me, boys. Like, let's, let's do this. What's, what's going on in, in his mind here? Can, can we, because we are extensions of the disciples, continuation of, of that same mantle and call, can we or can't we take the cup? See, it, it's fairly simple, but it's also profound. He's saying you can't serve the way that I serve. You cannot atone for humanity. You can't take the big cup. But there is a cup. There's an opportunity for all of us day in and day out to step into something of what Christ did, does, and continues to do. Step into something of the character of, of Christ. You know, there's an analogy uh, of the people of Israel in Exodus that's often used. We're all familiar with the story of the people of Israel in Exodus, yeah? Anyone need me to recap? No shame in recapping. People of Israel, they're enslaved in Egypt. Moses comes and he frees them. They come out of Egypt and they enter into the desert on the way to the promised land. And so there these people are that have been enslaved, that have been subjugated, that have been in bondage. Do you see the uh, analogy to what Jesus is saying about us? And, and these people are now free. They're free from slavery. They're free from bondage. They're free from captivity. But their unhealthy ways of behaving need to be unlearned. They're, they're bent out of shape to the point that some of them would rather go back to slavery, would rather go back to bondage, back to captivity, because it's a known quantity. If you don't believe me, it's, it's found in Numbers chapter 11, verse 5. But they have to learn to get Egypt out of them. See, I believe Jesus is saying, I, I will free you. In fact, I have freed you. You are free from the penalty of sin. Salvation is yours if you're in relationship with Jesus, if you have accepted his sacrifice for you on the cross, but you are not yet free of the power of sin. And in fact, to walk into greatness, to walk into the call that you have on your life to be fully human in a counterintuitive way to actually experience any real healing in our lives, to force out the destruction, the toxicity that we take in on a daily basis because we are broken. We need to embrace what Jesus did, which is the last thing, if we're honest, I think, any of us want to do. Quick, quick survey. Close your eyes. This will be fully anonymous. Who here, when you wake up in the morning, you're like, do you know what I would love to do today? I would love to put myself to death. I don't mean literally, but like, I would love to just whole day. I don't want anything to work out for me. I just want to contribute good to the world at my own expense. Quick show of hands. Angels in the building. Raise your hands. I'll write to the Vatican. We've got saints. We are writing. Okay, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Point, point proven. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not our natural inclination. It's not our fleshly desire to want 
to sacrifice ourselves, to want to put ourselves out. And yet Jesus is saying to the disciples who have asked for a seat at the table when he rules the world, you have it backwards. The things that you think will bring you satisfaction, power and significance, they will only become idols and they will only disappoint you. He's saying to the disciples, you misunderstand the power dynamic just as I think we are inclined to do. You think a seat of importance will make you awesome, but really if you want to be great, if you want real life, Jesus says, become a servant. Step into serving. When Jesus became man, he gave us a living, breathing example of what it truly means to be fully human, to be satisfied in who we are. And so by following Jesus, we can return to what it actually means to be human. And in doing so, we can find life and healing. The only hitch is it's the last thing that we would naturally want to do. See, Jesus says over and over again, things like in in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Matthew chapter 23, verse 11 to 12, the greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Which is pretty crazy. It's not something you might hear preached in church all the time because it goes over like this. People sit there quietly and go, oh, did you know it was going to be one of these sermons this Sunday? I was kind of hoping it would be like a, you've got life and blessing sermon. Which week was meant to be life and blessing week? Should we come back for life and blessing week? Oh, gee, I think the kids, the kids need picking up from kids' church. I'm so sorry, I've got to go. Because it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to say, hey, we are called by Jesus to take up our cross daily, to step into death, to to take up death, to become a servant. But I believe Jesus says it because it's essential for our health that we be serving somewhere. See, this is the pointy end of the sermon. Somewhere in in which you come into line with the example and character of Christ. And I want to say, church is a great place to serve. Some of you are feeling a little bit jaded. You're like, ah, here we go. I knew it. It's a serving drive. He's trying to increase the number of people in teams. That's true, but it's for the exact opposite reason that you think. See, church is a great place to serve. In fact, I believe that there's nowhere better because I believe that when we serve in church, we are building something that God praises, that's something that God favors, something that God esteems, that we are building His house. And when we work on His house, He says in Haggai that He builds ours. That, that we don't actually do it for that reason, though, that it's not an exchange, that it's not a, God, I'm going to serve here so that you make my life great. I'm going to talk about that tonight. Lightning McQueen did that when he was paving the road. That's a, you'll have to come along, right? Movies, it's going to be incredible. Yeah, come and see it and, and eat some snacks. But, but in life, we're not serving for greatness. Instead, I think what happens is that as we serve, we become great. It's not that greatness is delivered to us. It's not that it's a divine cheat code to get what we want out of life. But something in us changes. But I want to say, when you're serving in church, be careful. Because when you're serving in church, you are not serving to do a job. When you're serving in church, you are not serving to fulfill a need. In fact, this applies anywhere in life in which we are serving, but I think we are most likely to fall into the pitfalls in church. You are not serving to do a job. You are not serving to fulfill a need. Those are amazing side effects. It is very, very helpful that when Aaron came in and and put up the lights and when we put together the LED screen as an act of service, it made this whole thing look great and come together. I'm very thankful. 
But if the only reason that we are doing it is to make it come together, is to pull it come to, together, if that's the reason, then what is meant to be worship becomes idolatry. In, in, in the worst twist imaginable, that we could come into church seeking to serve God, doing something from a good motivation, but that our motivation would get twisted somewhere along the way, and it would go from being something that we do as we step into the character of Christ, serving His mission to something that we do to fulfill a need or to get recognition, and we make a good thing that we were doing the ultimate thing, and we make serving in church an idol. It's not uncommon. I know because I've done it more than once in my life. And the reason, that the way that you know that you've done it is you start to look back, you start to get a resentment in your heart towards something that should be good, towards something that should be a, a, a pure and loving act. And you go, man, I'm just so sick of doing this. And if that's happening, something needs to change. If that's happening, what it means is that a good thing has been put in the wrong place. And that's not something I say to condemn you. It's something I say to encourage you that it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to put a good thing in the, in the wrong place for the wrong reason, seeking meaning or worth or value from it. But, but we can find a, a good reason for doing the right thing. See, maybe when you think of serving in church, if you're honest, you think of burnout and, and thankless tasks and, and, and hurt. The reality is, is that's not how it should be, but all too often that can happen. And I want to say, if that's happening for you, don't quit serving altogether for the rest of your life. Sometimes we can be like, man, I tried that, didn't work, got hurt, got burnt out, I'm quitting this, this doesn't work. It's like we tried going keto for a while, we ate like a caveman, I didn't get jacked, I didn't get buff, I'm going back to eating bread, thank you very much, it's much too nice for my life. Bread and pasta, our life, right, God is the bread, Jesus is the bread of life, it's biblical to eat bread, this is what I'm doing. But we can do that with serving. Well, hey, it didn't work. I tried it. I got hurt. I got burnt out. I didn't enjoy church anymore. I felt disconnected from God. I'm not doing this. And if that happened, it's not meant to. But the answer is not to quit it altogether because then you deny yourself something that can be so life-giving. The answer is to recalibrate. You might need to take a break, sure. You might need to, to, to pause for a while so that you can remove something from a place of idolatry and get it back into a healthy order. But serve, serve in some sort of way because when you serve, you're stepping into the character of Christ. If you are not serving in church, can I encourage you, be serving somewhere in your life. This is not me saying serve in church. I am saying serving in church is amazing, but more important than you serving here is you serving somewhere. And if you are currently not serving here, then be serving somewhere. Be volunteering in your community. Be, be serving at your kid's school. Be, be doing something extra, something for nothing, something that costs you that you get no return from because in doing it, you step into the character of Christ. See, I want to say it this way. Jesus' death on the cross removed the penalty of sin, but it's our continual death to ourselves, which is the only way to remove the power of sin from our life. When we serve, we bring ourselves to life. Serving is like spiritual CPR. It forces life back into you. It moves something within you. And when it's done for the right motivation, not for people, not to fill a gap, but as a response to and in line with Christ, it brings healing. Look, I'm, I'm almost done. I'll, I'll get uh, bent up on the keys. But I, I, I want to tell you the reason that I'm passionate about this is because this has been part of my testimony, serving. The whole gambit of the experience, serving poorly, 
serving well, serving poorly again, feeling like I figured it out, realizing some things are in the wrong place. I've gone through it all, and I will continue to because I am a fallible, broken human, and I will put the wrong things in the wrong places and then be disappointed that they do not return what I expect them to. That's life, but that doesn't mean that we give up on the journey. See, I grew up as a, my my, my parents are pastors. I grew up as a a pastor's kid, right? PK. Come on, I know we've got some PKs in the house. And uh, as a result, serving was kind of a, a thing that I was brought up doing. I arrived at church early because that was the time that we arrived at church. And not arriving at church was not an option. It was not on the table. It was arrive at church early or cease to exist. Those were my two options. And I continued to choose to arrive at church early. And so I was always helping out somewhere. For a long time, I was not helping out in a very helpful way. I'd put out the chairs and then someone would have to straighten them after I tried. But I was trying. And I served. But as I grew up, I got, I got sneaky at serving. I figured out places that I could serve, which it didn't really cost me. I could serve in, in areas that, that might look impressive, but were really low effort. Actually, if you, if you just turn this on, it was, it was, as, as technology got invented, so I can do the PowerPoint for the words. People are like, oh, he knows computers. This is amazing. We don't have to do the OHP anymore. I was, I was that kid. Oh, look at him. He's doing it all by himself. He's amazing. I was like, yeah, you don't know. Just literally press a button. This is very easy. And then it became I was serving in areas that I enjoyed, which isn't wrong, but I was only serving in areas that I enjoyed. Oh, you know, I'll play on the team, and, and I'll get to do this, and but only if I get my crunchy distortion on my guitar, right? I'm not playing no jingly jangly chords. I'm a, I'm a rocker for Christ. Come on. Mm. And, and then there, became, there came a moment. I was asked to join the youth team. I was like, yeah, I'll join the youth team. Because youth should be cool, and I'm the coolest person I know. Therefore, I was very humble. Therefore, if I join youth, it's going to become like a thousand percent cooler. So, I mean, it makes, makes sense that you would want me in the room, that you would want me a part of it. And so I joined the youth team. And I came along on, on, on a Friday night, and I hung out with the kids, and I played PlayStation, and, and, and we talked. And, and then Friday night finished, and I was like, sweet. See you guys later. I'm done. Heading on out. And then someone was like, oh, just, just one moment. Just need you to do this. Give me a vacuum cleaner. It's like, I just, I don't know if this is my gifting. I just don't know if God's graced me to, to the cleaning ministry. I just don't feel like it's my, my call. You know, like nothing, there's no spark in me that comes alive when I think of vacuuming for Christ. I would like to continue to play PlayStation for Christ, please. That's, uh, I believe, the, the lane that God has put me in. But I vacuumed. And I've got to be honest, the first time I vacuumed, I did not have a good attitude about it. I've got to be honest, the second time I vacuumed, I, I didn't have a good attitude about it either. I don't actually know when my attitude changed towards vacuuming, but at some stage, something in me shifted. Almost as, as, as I was serving, as I was intentionally doing something that I did not really want to do, something in me moved. And then we needed drivers for youth. So I would go out and, and I would drive around for a couple of hours. One time I got the van stuck on like a curb. We were there till like two in the morning trying to get the van off the curb. I didn't call AA because I was embarrassed. It wasn't a smart move. And then I went back to the church in a vacuum. But I say this not to be like, hey, look at me, I've served, it's amazing, I'm incredible. But because of what it did in me, as I served, as I did something that I didn't necessarily want to do, I started to realize how preciously I treated myself. 
how much myself was a master. That there were certain things I simply could not do because it would damage how I viewed myself. There were certain things that I could not do because they would interfere too much with my idols that I esteemed in my life. No, no, I need to live life in this way. I need to be this sort of person. And when I started to move them by serving, things started to come free in me and God started to move in my life. God started to move. God started to speak in ways that I'd never heard Him speak before. God started to encourage me. God started to pull things out of me because I'd made a way for Him as I stepped into the biblical principle of serving. See, serving will not be easy. Because God's kingdom always involves cups. But the greatest example we have to look to is Jesus. Let let me put it this way to, to conclude. When the disciples, James and John, came to Jesus, they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And surely in that moment, Jesus must have looked at them, and in his heart, he must have been saying, like, Really? Whatever you ask, do you know if only you knew where I was moving? If only you knew what I was moving towards. If only you knew how much I was doing. And then going on in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's in the midst of doing more than the disciples could ever have imagined, he turns to them and he says, hey, would you stay awake with me? Would you keep watch with me? Would you, would you pray with me as I wrestle with what I'm about to do for you? And he goes and he comes back and they're asleep. And what does he do? He says, it's okay. I know. Mark chapter 14, verse 38 says, He says to them, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. They fall short. They disappoint him in this small request. And his response is, No, no, it's okay. You're trying, guys. Giving it your best shot. See, the reality is, is that we're the disciples. We fall short. We could not earn what God has done for us, and we don't seek to. But do you see, Jesus died for people who slept through his hour of greatest need. I wonder, are there people in in your life who who honestly you're kind of mad with because they slept through your hour of greatest need? You were in a time of hurt. You were in a time of trouble, and, and they should have known. I'm not saying that they shouldn't have, but what are you doing now? Are you withdrawing from them? Are you attacking them? Are you being cold to them? Have you given up on them? Or do you keep a position, a stance of servanthood towards them? Jesus died for people who are wanting from him and never wanting to give anything. Are there people in your life who are always wanting to take and never wanting to give? Again, what's your response? Jesus died for people who are stubborn, who refuse to be humble and ask for forgiveness. Are there people in your life who are stubborn? How are you treating them? See, Jesus gives us a clear example of what it means to live fully, and it's embracing the role of a servant. See, that's why I say that that we will make space for you to serve in church. If our teams all get full, I will create new teams for no other purpose than to give you somewhere to serve. Because the reality is, is that serving is the smallest part of being a servant. Serving is the easiest part of being a servant. If you can't serve, you're going to have a hard time putting yourself second. If you can't serve, you're going to have a hard time putting yourself to death, putting your flesh to death, your preferences. You're going to have a hard time loving people who let you down in your hour of greatest need. You're going to have a hard time looking after people who are wanting from you and never giving anything in return. You're going to have a hard time loving people who are stubborn 
and yet we would turn to them and love them with Christ's love. If we cannot serve, all those other things are going to be seemingly impossible. And so we want to create space to step into the practice of serving. We can pull this off with a skeleton team, and it might even be easier, but it entirely defeats the point of what we're doing. We are not here asking you to serve because we need you to get something done. We are not here asking you to serve because we want you to, you know, have a, have a position and a title and take value from it. The very opposite. We want to honor serving. We want to build loving, healthy teams. We want to eliminate any toxic culture in which serving is an obligation or a hard thing to do or puts an unnecessary weight or burden. But we don't want to do that and remove the cost because the cost the cost is where the, the rubber hits the road. The cost is where we get an opportunity in the smallest possible way to die to ourselves, to build a biblical practice of putting ourselves second, of saying, God, not me, you, of emulating our Savior, our Lord. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as everyone around him let him down, and yet he would go to God and say, I know what I'm going to do for them. I know it's going to be hard, and yet not my will, but your will be done. I'm going to embrace hardship. I'm going to put myself second because this is the upside-down way of the kingdom. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.